Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about brain tumors with Dr. Zachary Corbin. Dr. Corbin is an assistant professor of neuro-oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Corbin, let's start by talking about neuro-oncology. I mean, a lot of people, when they think about brain tumors, are a little bit scared by the whole concept. Um, So are we talking about brain tumors that start in the brain or brain tumors that start somewhere else and go to the brain? Well, that's a great question. So the um, neuro-oncology as a discipline actually takes care of both types of patients. Um, Something on the order of 10 to 15% of all cancer patients may actually have a metastasis or a spread of their cancer to the brain. And in that case, that is a brain tumor, although that brain tumor is really part of a larger disease. There are another set of patients that we take care of that have what are called primary brain tumors. And those patients um, do not have evidence of uh, cancer anywhere else in their body. And actually, they, the first sign of anything going wrong is something that happened in their brain. Hmm. And so I know in a lot of cancers, whether it's breast cancer or thyroid cancer or all kinds of cancers that we talk about on this show, there's often different types of cancers, even within one organ. Is that true in the brain as well? Absolutely. So um, with sort of talking with broad strokes, there are multiple different types of cancers that occur within the head and the spinal cord. So you can have cancers that involve the lining of the brain. Well, they're not really cancers. They're more tumors that involve the lining of the brain. And you can have cancers that involve different parts of the brain that have even different groupings. Um, And so the the most common um, uh, type of primary brain tumor that a neuro-oncologist in general takes care of would be um, in in a group of tumors called the gliomas. And the gliomas come, they grow out of the brain. Um, We don't really completely understand where they come from, but the thinking is that they come from a type of cell which is not the neurons or the or the sort of cells in the brain that specifically help with thinking and moving, but the type of cells in the brain that are helping the neurons to live and to function. Hmm. And so tell us more about these gliomas. What kind of tumors are they? How do they present? What's the prognosis? That kind of thing. So Gliomas um, have many different forms, um, and actually, as what, one thing that divides gliomas and many other forms of cancer is that we actually do not talk about gliomas in general in stage. So hmm. gliomas uniquely uh, generally do not spread outside of the brain. Very, very rarely they do, but most of the time, even the most aggressive gliomas, which are called glioblastomas, they stay within the brain. They don't actually move to other parts of the body. 
So the way that we generally divide gliomas is by grade, which is a different uh, process. And the main thing that defines grade is when a pathologist is able to look under the microscope after a surgeon has actually taken a part of that glioma out of the brain. Then they can tell us what the grade is. However, speaking uh, hypothetically about different grades of gliomas, there are four. And um, grade one gliomas, the most common of which is a pilocytic astrocytoma, that one can be taken out. And if it's completely removed by a surgeon, that patient, we would not expect to have that tumor come back. Mm. Um, and then it uh, moves all the way up to what is a grade four. That's the highest grade uh, tumor, which is a glioblastoma. And a glioblastoma has a completely different prognosis. And unfortunately, that's a very aggressive tumor that's almost guaranteed to come back, not for every patient, but most patients. And so it sounds like uh, when patients are diagnosed with brain cancers, it's really important that they understand what the grade is so that they understand their prognosis and treatment options. That's exactly right. And then as uh, the field is moving forward, and really this has happened over the past few years while I've been in practice, not only are we uh, using the grade to help us with the way that we would treat a patient, but we're using other molecular characteristics to the tumor. And so a molecular characteristic is actually something that can be obtained by other testing, often not just by a pathologist uh, with a microscope, but by testing that is done in a lab. And many of those tests are actually genetic tests. And so um, in some ways, you can think of it as the tumor has a genetic fingerprint, and that fingerprint may actually change the recommendation for a tumor that has the same grade um, from a neuro-oncologist and their colleagues. So this is the whole personalized medicine thing that we're always talking about on the show. That's exactly right. And I think that that is the best example in neuro-oncology, that it is the way that we practice um, uh, sort of in this, in this era. And that really has changed since I started training um, in neuro-oncology, where um, uh, previously it was really based on the way that the cells looked under the microscope. Um, now uh, treatment is really based, at least for some patients, it's entirely determined by one of those tests that are actually done frequently uh, of a genetic basis. And so when we talk about that personalized medicine piece, looking at the genetic or genomic components of the cancer, are we now talking about different kinds of chemotherapy to treat these brain tumors? Is that how things are personalized? Well, so it more has to do with either the order of the treatments or the rapidity with which we feel the treatments should be received or whether you should receive them together. So I think one thing that would be good to make sure um, that everyone understands is the sort of usual treatment for some of these gliomas. So um, it usually is divided into two forms. There's radiation treatments and there's chemotherapy treatments. Um, and that is um, uh, after surgical treatments are exhausted or they've um, uh, been elected not to do any further surgeries. So radiation is administered by a radiation oncologist that we work with. Neuro-oncologists do not administer radiation themselves, but we are often involved in the decision about when um, and, uh, and um, whether or not chemotherapy is administered with radiation. And so um, in addition to uh, radiation, um, there is 
several different types of chemotherapy, some of which are given by infusion in an infusion center, and some of which are given by pill. The most common chemotherapy that we give, especially for patients with glioblastomas, is called Temodar. That is a pill. However, there are some um, other chemotherapy regimens, uh, the most common of which is is called PCV, which is for the first initials of those drugs, and that is given at least in part with infusions. The molecular characteristics can tell us whether or not we should be given one, either PCV or Temodar, or what our best guess is, and whether we should be giving radiation and chemotherapy when the patient is diagnosed, or whether we can give them one at a time, or whether um, it's safe to watch the patient and decide whether in the future, and by watch I mean make sure that, the, that um, our patient doesn't have more symptoms, make sure that they don't have um, changes to their MRI before we decide to do other treatments. So let's start at the beginning now that you've mentioned symptoms. How is it that people present with brain tumors to begin with? Because, you know, one would imagine that brain tumors often present with headaches, but a lot of people get headaches. So how do you know that you're just having a headache versus needing a neuro-oncologist because you have a brain tumor? <laughs> That's a great question. I think that a lot of our patients do have headaches. However, one of the things that I hear when I talk to patients that's different from, I think, what a lot of people may think is that the severity of a headache from a brain tumor is not the main issue. So a severe headache is not helpful to tell you whether or not this is likely related to a brain tumor. Other patterns about the headache can be helpful. Headaches from brain tumors are sometimes worse in the morning. They're sometimes unusually constant, or they may be different from a headache that a patient is used to receiving or used to having. And in addition, and more importantly, it's the symptoms that happen other than a headache. So tumors often cause problems with the brain that they are involving, and those problems can be as different as the parts of the brain that uh, control those either movements or thoughts or feelings. So one of the issues is that sometimes people have numbness of an arm or a leg and a headache. They have weakness of an arm or a leg. They may have problems with their vision. It's anything that the brain does um, that is involved uh, with the tumor that actually is part of what or part of what is the first sign for someone. And that actually brings up one of the things that can be challenging about our patients coming to see us is that frequently, and this is something that is shared between brain tumors and other neurologic diseases, frequently patients who have symptoms of a brain tumor, their symptoms are actually the absence of an ability to do that. And providers or other doctors can call that a negative symptom. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be that patients don't necessarily think that negative symptoms are as severe. So the most, I think, common positive symptom that would cause most people to go see a doctor would be chest pain. Mm -hmm. That's something you feel. Whereas a very common symptom of a tumor that occurs in the back of the brain would be a loss of a part of their vision. And that, for some patients, is not as disturbing as, for example, pain. And so that can affect our ability to see patients as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And so if you have these kinds of symptoms, you have a headache, it occurs in the morning, it's pretty constant, you've never felt anything like this before, you're having some numbness and weakness or seizures or something, um, what is your course of action? 
action? Do you go and see your primary care doctor? Do you see a neurologist? Do you see a neuro-oncologist? Um, what kinds of workup is done so that by the time the patient sees you, um, you've got the information you need to make a diagnosis and to talk about treatment options? Well, that's great. So I think one of the things, one of the disclaimers I want to say now is that a sudden change in neurologic symptoms, the most likely thing is not a brain tumor, but actually a stroke. And mm -hmm. so a sudden change, certainly within hours, but even within a day, is a medical emergency. And the only place to actually have those symptoms evaluated would be an emergency room. So you should go to an emergency room right away. Mm -hmm. The emergency room can facilitate the scans that may actually help us differentiate that from a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. However, um, the usual sequence of events, and I'm glad you mentioned seizure. A lot of our patients do have seizures, although that is not um, always something that involves the brain tumors caused before they come before patients are brought to medical attention. The a patient who has a sign of, a, of some sort of change, a headache, um, as long as there's no emergency, it's perfectly reasonable for them to see their their family doctor. Their family doctor may actually do what's called a neurologic exam and actually find things that are different that they didn't detect. And that may trigger them to do a scan. And that might be enough information where a neuro-oncologist at a brain tumor center would be helpful. Frequently, they don't come to see neuro-oncologists first. Frequently, they get sent to a neurosurgeon. Mm. And the neurosurgeon actually can also help with additional testing that may be necessary. Um, and sometimes either the neuro-oncologist or the neurosurgeon is the one who's called from the emergency room. So, so it can be either way they come to us. And then a neuro-oncologist is definitely most helpful um, after the diagnosis with respect to helping determine treatments. And so, and then I use this term diagnosis, which is so important to oncologists. And oncologists often mean a specific thing when they say diagnosis, which is something that is different from what a lot of other either doctors or um, people in the public may think. And diagnosis is not the first sign of a change, for example, on a scan, but a diagnosis that we want to arrive to is really uh, something we get from pathology. Okay. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about the diagnosis of brain tumors and what we do to get a diagnosis and treat it right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about brain tumors and neuro-oncology with my guest, Dr. Zachary Corbin. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Zachary Corbin. We're talking about new advances in brain tumor treatments and clinical trials. And right before the break, we were talking about how patients present uh, with symptoms that may be suggestive of a brain tumor. So we talked about headaches and seizures and weakness and so on. Now, right before the break, Zach, one of the things you mentioned was that it's really important in terms of obtaining a diagnosis, an actual name of a tumor, to obtain pathology. So how exactly is that done? Excellent question. So we uh, work with our neurosurgical colleagues And there are many neurosurgeons who actually have a focus, a practice in uh, brain tumor surgery. And so um, those are the ones with whom we work most closely. uh, And they really have a lot of impact on how a diagnosis is obtained because especially in an organ like the brain, where a tumor occurs has so much to do with the amount of disability it can cause, which could be permanent weakness. And also it has so much to do with how much disability you could uh, have by doing a neurosurgery to try to actually determine what the diagnosis is, that very important conclusion. And so there are definitely some tumors that we are only able to see the signs of on a scan, for example, a magnetic resonance image or an MRI. And so we have to stop there because the neurosurgeon tells us it is just not safe to do a biopsy even, which is the, which is the medical term for sticking a needle inside mm-hmm. of a tissue and not taking anything else out. But there are times in which a biopsy even is unsafe. Mm-hmm. And there is a completely different uh, setting in which um, there are parts of the brain where although they all do important things, most people would not notice a change even if you took a large portion of the brain out. And the Mm -hmm. most common area is one of the frontal lobes, for example. And so you could have a very large uh, tumor in a frontal lobe that if you remove, actually it causes very few symptoms. And so a surgeon would not even want to do a biopsy to begin with. They would want to have the patient um, have a full surgery in an OR where they where they actually um, even remove part of the skull and take out an entire tissue mm-hmm. or entire entire tumor. And so once we have as much of that as we can we can safely obtain, then we are able to get both the pathologist's perspective, what it looks like under the microscope compared to normal brain, and then also that molecular fingerprint, which involves some genetic tests as we discussed. Yeah. And so sometimes actually the molecular fingerprint only tells us what we should or should not do for a certain type of tumor, and sometimes it tells us different things uh, or sort of it, it moves the, moves what we're going to do from one treatment arrangement to another. So I think one thing I'd like to talk about is is the most common treatment that we, or the most common diagnosis that we treat, um, although all of our diagnoses are really rare officially, it's what we see the most of is glioblastoma. Mm-hmm. And patients who have glioblastoma um, actually have uh, recommendation, assuming that everything is going well, for a very aggressive treatment. And so the the evidence shows that patients do the best if they receive, to begin with, about a month after surgery, both radiation and chemotherapy at the same time, which is what we call chemoradiation, for six weeks. Following that six-week six week period, they have a month 
break, and then they have six more months at least of just the, the chemotherapy. So, for example, for someone who has a diagnosis of glioblastoma, and maybe they don't, they're not as interested in receiving all of the treatment as I've described it to you, our ability to counsel on whether or not that is advisable might have to do with one of those uh, genetic signatures. There's a genetic signature that's called MGMT, and that signature, if it's methylated, it actually tells us that chemotherapy is really helpful for that tumor. It fights it well. And if it's not methylated, it tells us that, you know, chemotherapy is not as helpful for that tumor. And some neuro-oncologists may actually say it's not even necessary as part of the treatment. So there's a, that's a good example of, a, of a, what we think is a relatively common diagnosis, but actually the, one of the main treatment discussions can stem from those molecular features. And then furthermore, for example, at Yale, we have a trial in which uh, a patient would only be eligible for, for one of the trials if they have that methylation of the MGMT promoter in their tumor. And so in addition to helping us counsel patients on what the best way forward is as their doctor, we can also help counsel them as clinical researchers about what treatment trial options there are. So let's, that's a nice segue to talk about clinical trials. What are the newer exciting advances in neuro-oncology? Because I'll tell you, a lot of people who are listening may think, oh my gosh, brain tumor, um, that sounds like a really scary word, um, and are hopeful that it becomes less scary in the future with new treatments. Well, I think that hope is really shared by a whole um, array of researchers and clinical trialists that sort of actually work throughout the country. And so, um, and at Yale specifically, we have several different clinical trials that are available. Um, and so, one of the things to know about clinical trials I think might be the most important for patients and their loved ones is that clinical trials are often available for patients at diagnosis, which is right when they had their pathologic diagnosis before treatment has started, or at what's called recurrence, which is a sign that the tumor is back either because the patient is having a harder time or because the patient has changes on a test that we've done where we think that's a sign of tumor. And so, and actually the clinical trial trials available to that patient would be different based on whether they are newly diagnosed and whether or not they are at recurrence and whether or not they've had various different treatments uh, that happen along the way, which might actually uh, impact their what's called an eligibility for the clinical trials. So I think some things that are exciting um, in in um, neuro-oncology that are currently going on is whether or not something that has been really big headlines in cancer might help in neuro-oncology, and that's called immunotherapy. Mm -hmm. So immunotherapy, as we use it in our trials in neuro-oncology, it's an antibody that actually blocks basically a cancer's ability to almost cloak itself from the immune system or block the immune system, which is part of our normal body, um, from actually targeting and killing the tumor. 
Mm -hmm. So it turns out that it certainly doesn't work as well in the brain as it does in some other cancers. For example, the best example is melanoma. It works very well in a lot of melanoma patients. It certainly does not work that well in brain tumors, but there is actually a subset of patients where we have a lot of suspicion they may benefit from immunotherapy. And that is the kind of um, advance that we're really excited about, is really, is really, if you will, moving the needle. And there's other things actually that are, that are sort of further away from um, the ability to, to treat a patient right now with it, but are sort of might advance our understanding of it. And that's something that I spend a lot of my time doing. And that's sort of metabolic imaging. So um, one of the things that we have learned, and actually we learned a long time ago but have revisited, is that cancers actually have different metabolism than the normal body. Mm -hmm. And they have basically the way that they use glucose can actually, even if everything else is normal, be different than the way that a normal body uses it. And so we have had a really hard time in the past actually looking at the way that something like a brain tumor uses glucose and other metabolites because it's very hard to take a, there is no picture that exists right now that we can show um, a patient, for example, that actually tells us that. The closest is, and some, some um, really astute listeners might be thinking, isn't that what a PET scan shows me? Mm -hmm. I thought that was a meta metabolic scan. It is true that some PET scans do show something about metabolism, but what they really don't show is how it's being, how once glucose or another uh, fuel gets to a tumor, how it's being used. So we actually have several different techniques that we're working on that actually will show us potentially that change that happens within the tumor. And the reason why that's really important is one of the things, we haven't talked about this at all yet, is that, um, for example, if a patient has had a very aggressive treatment, for example, for an aggressive tumor, it's such an aggressive treatment that sometimes a neuro-oncologist spends a lot of time trying to determine if the tumor is back or if what we see is called pseudoprogression. And pseudoprogression is a funny-sounding word for really reaction. So your body reacts to things that have toxicity to them or can damage the body. And radiation and chemotherapy do both of those things. And we have a lot of patients whose brain is really reacting to our treatment. And so one of the things is we have no scans, for example, now that are particularly helpful with determining the difference. And I think that it seems, it makes sense to a lot of people, well, if the body's reacting to the tumor, maybe we should keep doing what we're doing, or the body's reacting to the treatment, maybe we should keep doing what we're doing because the tumor is not there. Whereas if the tumor is clearly there, for example, if there's a metabolic signature of a tumor that's different from a metabolic signature of reaction, then maybe that would help us in the future as well. So so we actually have, they're not um, they're not ready to treat patients with, but we, we actually are also having patients um, do research MRI scans where they are actually um, helping us learn whether the tools we have to see those metabolic signatures, which are sort of different from the molecular signatures we were discussing before, may help neuro-oncologists in the future with patients who have brain tumors. So that brings up a question that I think a lot of patients sometimes have, uh, which is, you know, we talk a lot about tumors eating glucose. So is having a high sugar diet a risk factor for getting a brain tumor? 
That's a really great question. So I recommend all my patients continue to have a healthy and well-balanced diet. There are certainly some um, diets that patients actually, they're often called elimination diets, that patients may want to take um, to reduce the ability of the tumor to grow, or maybe even with your question of a risk factor, reduce their risk of having a tumor. Um, but most of the time, we don't recommend those elimination diets. I do want to talk about risk factors, though. Risk factors is a very common question that we get. And I think the biggest question maybe in everyone's mind is, does my cell phone cause brain tumors? And in general, we don't think so. Actually, we don't think most people have a risk factor for their brain tumor. When we see patients, very rarely do I think something clearly caused that brain tumor. There are a few exceptions. So there are some genetic syndromes. The most common that I've seen is neurofibromatosis, types 1 and types 2. Those are both associated with um, gliomas. And in addition, there's a few others that are genetic syndromes. However, for someone who is, for example, 40 or 50 or 60, more than likely they would know they had that syndrome for some other reason, and the brain tumor would not be the first sign of it. So in general, they're not genetically linked either, because sometimes patients that we see say, should, should my daughter get tested? And that usually is not advisable. And then the other thing is... Um, uh, whether or not there is radiation that the patient has been treated with. Now, small doses of radiation, not likely to be involved, but a nuclear accident, for example, or if they have had a radiation oncologist before that is needed to treat a, a cancer that has already spread to the brain that's not a brain tumor, those patients do have a higher risk. So there are some patients that do have a higher risk, um, but that's a very rare patient. Uh, most of the time, we don't have a cause for their brain tumor, which okay. is another area of research. And so, it, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of really exciting research going on. Just in, in our last 30 seconds, is the prognosis for most brain cancers good, fair, or poor? The prognosis is really variable. So there are some patients, as I mentioned, where you could actually um, tell them they don't need to come back and see you. They've been cured after they actually see a neurosurgeon who's done the best surgery they can have. And there's other patients that we establish a really long-term relationship with, and we tell them we need to see you from everywhere, from every once every two months to once every six months. And so in that sense, it's very variable, and it's one of the reasons why a neuro-oncologist can be really valuable to a patient and help them along their way. Dr. Zachary Corbin is an assistant professor of neuro-oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.